right, we are um, in week three now of our series, Just Church, Becoming a Family of God's Shalom, which, thanks to Greg, he reminded us that shalom means... Good. Uh, that was better than first, uh, first hour, so that's, that's good. Shalom, nothing missing, nothing broken. Uh, the idea that uh, being God's people means that somehow that idea of what God's doing renewing a world, nothing missing, nothing broken, that that shapes the way that we think about our life together and our lives as Christians uh, through the lens of this question of justice. So today we're going to review a few concepts we've talked about uh, in a scattered way over the last few months. So there may be some things you've, you've heard me say before, um, but I want to try to bring them all together. Last week we talked about the idea of as a church we're called to be a people who live out an alternative way of life in the world. I want to hold that intention with a different idea today. Um, get at that by telling you a story. That when we lived in New York, we were uh, pastoring at a church that was in a neighborhood called Bay Ridge. Now, Bay Ridge is uh, way down on the very south side of Brooklyn, and it was kind of cut off by, by a bunch of interstates, and so it was kind of like a land that time forgot. Like, if you were to walk down some of our avenues at Christmas time, it would look like that, that opening scene from A Christmas Story, right? So it looked very retro. Um, but it was also a very rapidly changing neighborhood, but just not in the ways that all of... So Brooklyn was getting super cool and hip when we lived there, but that's not what was happening. In our part of the, the neighborhood, it was rapidly diversifying because it was becoming a landing spot for first and second generation immigrant uh, families. And so in our neighborhood, which was historically like Italian and Irish and some Scandinavian, it was a, an old mafia neighborhood. In that neighborhood, it was rapidly changing. It was, uh, it was uh, right next to Brooklyn's Chinatown, which was one of the biggest Chinatowns in the nation. Uh, it was a landing spot for almost all Arabic immigrants into the city. So from about 10 or 12 different countries, they were coming in. It was right next to a very large Hispanic neighborhood. And then there was a smattering of folks from all over the place. So it was rapidly changing. And we were sort of new to the city. We really liked that. It was a, a neat kind of... Uh, international experience, but not everyone thought it was awesome, particularly the people who'd lived there a long time. So again, I'm white, and I would walk through the neighborhood, and people would stop me because I looked like what the neighborhood used to look like. I'd get stopped on the street by a, a fellow white neighbor, and they'd, they'd, look around, they'd grab me by the arm. It's in New York, don't grab anyone by the arm, just pro, pro tip. they grab me, stop me. I said, can you believe all this? Look around at all the diversity. Can you believe all this? And then they also, um, there was uh, one, one time where it was about a two or three month span, I think, where when a house would come up for sale and they would have an open house, um, they would litter all the cars in the, in the windshield wipers with, with flyers that said, don't sell to the Chinese. Uh, I had a neighbor across the street who uh, would talk to me about the, the flippin' camel jockeys. But he didn't say flippin'. Uh, one day I was, uh, they referred to our neighborhood Bay Ridge as Beirut, but not in a good way. And then one day I was walking down the street and I saw this confetti on the road and I thought maybe there was like a parade or a party or something. Uh, and I got to it and I walked over it and I realized there were all these little slips of paper that said, kill the Jews. This was all within like a one year span all these different experiences. 
So I was a pastor in this neighborhood, and the question that kept coming up to me is, what does it mean to be the church in a place like this? With all this racial and ethnic tension, what does it mean to be the church? And maybe the bigger question is, what does the gospel have to say to a place that's so broken along those racial and ethnic lines? And then if you put those questions together and you think about, my job is to help lead the church, the question that I was always wrestling with was, how do we say it? As the church, what does the gospel say to a place that is this broken? And how would we as the church say it? Last week we talked about that way of life. That to be the church means that we embody what is true and what is good and what is beautiful in a world that is false and evil and ugly. I don't... um, I don't mean to say that when I say we embody something true, good, and beautiful, uh, that there's not space for genuinely faithful anger. You know, Jesus turned tables over. So there's a space for genuinely faithful anger, although for what it's worth, Jesus did that sort of inside the church, not out toward the world. But the question to me still remains, what does it mean to live as the church I thought, you know, I think part of this means that, that living that way means that we're living towards something, not just against something. I don't think our presence in the world is just against something, but it's towards something, a true and good and beautiful life that is an alternative to everything else we saw around us. So for me, it's helpful to think about the church not only as an alternative to the world, but as a parable. Anybody ever read one of Jesus' parables? So I'm a big fan of Eugene Peterson, and and he writes in his book, uh, The Contemplative Pastor, uh, about what a parable is and how Jesus would use them. So I'm going to read this little quote. I should have put it up on the screen, but I'm going to read this little quote, and it's, it's Eugene talking about how Jesus used a parable, but I want you to hear it through the lens of what it might mean to be the church. Okay? So let me read this to you. Eugene said, Jesus' favorite speech form was a parable, and parables are subversive. Parables sound absolutely ordinary. They're casual stories about soil and seeds, and bandits and victims, farmers and merchants. In that case, they're wholly secular, meaning they're not about God. That's what would happen. As people heard these stories, they would say at once, this isn't about God. So there's nothing in it that like threatens their own sovereignty. And they can relax their defenses. They would receive the story and then they would walk away perplexed, wondering what they meant. And the stories were sort of lodged in their imagination. But then, like a time bomb, they would sort of explode in their unprotected hearts. An abyss would open up at their very feet. He was talking about God. And they had been invaded. I love some of that language. What does it mean then to say, well, if the church is supposed to be a parable, what does that say about us? Well, it means that we're going to be ordinary. At face value, there's nothing sort of other about us. We integrate into normal day-to-day life in the world. That when people encounter the church... There's nothing at face value that makes them put their defenses up. That doesn't exactly describe the way the church and the world interact now, though, does it? 
But to think of the church as a parable means that when the world encounters us in whatever way, it's not going to put up its defenses, but because we are so ordinary, they relax their defenses. They give us space to be part of the world that we live in. But when they do that, they're letting this ordinary community in that's also somewhat subversive. It's a little peculiar. And once we are a part of it, they realize that what seemed at face value ordinary is actually anything but ordinary. There is this this great difference between the way of life everyone else is living and the way of life we are living. But because they have received us in, they can't put their defenses up. Now they are just witnesses of what a real, true, good, and beautiful life really looks like. This, to me, was the essence of what our church in New York had to figure out how to do. We lived in the midst of a whole bunch of racial and ethnic hatred, and we were given the opportunity to embody a true, good, and beautiful life in the midst of that. So our church was kind of like the hub of a bicycle wheel. We're kind of radiating out from the center. There were all these different racial and ethnic neighborhoods, but in the middle was our little church. And we had congregations with every single one of those people groups already in our space. We were trying to work out together. That meant we had an opportunity that in the face of all of this racial and ethnic hatred, we could work out something that looked a little bit different than what everybody else was doing. We could put on display an alternative way of life where God's intentions for our community could be lived out. See, we weren't just going out and saying, racism is bad. Racism is bad. But what we were trying to do was that in a way that is lived out in our neighborhood. Now, here's the thing. That was easier said than done. Because any time we as humans try to, in community, live out the ways of God in the midst of a world that doesn't recognize it, the very first people that God starts to work on is us. And that's exactly what happened. When we said we want to try to work out how to be this multi-ethnic kingdom of God community, the very first people whose prejudices and biases and long-standing division were exposed was us. It brought up stuff in us we would have rather not admitted. We didn't want to deal with those things, and it was the hardest part of the work. But it strikes me that that's exactly the point. Is that we want to be about justice, but what God is doing is forming communities that are just. We want to seek God's shalom in the world, but what God is doing is forming a community where His shalom is at work. And that means that that work that we want to do in the world is going to start in us as a community. Such that when we go out to witness to the gospel, that the very first thing that witnesses to the gospel is the character of our life together. The kind of people we are becoming is the first thing that people are going to notice. So we had all these different uh, like programs that we were trying to do that would get at this. We did a, a pretty comprehensive summer kids program for all the different kids in the neighborhood. We had one youth group uh, between all the different uh, language groups in our church. We were trying to work out this little thing at the youth group level. We started an immigrant legal clinic 
in our foyers so that we could work with these families and help them process their documents so they wouldn't get taken advantage of. But all of those things were just programs that would get undermined unless we were becoming a particular kind of people. That we could live out what God wanted, not just do stuff in the neighborhood. So at one point we had this... um, like celebration for the kickoff for our legal center, and we invited some of the local politicians. And I, it was like our city councilman or, or somebody came to the, uh, to the event, and I just, I just felt myself thinking, this guy probably thinks we're crazy. Right down here, and he's got all these different people from every like, sector of his city, and he's used to like going over here to talk to this group of folks and going over here to talk to this group of folks. But here in this space, we're all like together trying to work it out. But that was exactly it. He had walked into the parable. He had seen something of what God might intend that was different than what he would experience every day out in the city. That was the important part. We were able to engage our community because we demonstrated a difference. A difference, a challenge maybe even to the status quo all around us. Like if you came in our church, we weren't perfect by any means, but if you came in this community, you would experience something of what God would intend. You get a picture of what God wants just by being part of our community. That's true for us. To experience our community, and I don't mean just like on Sunday morning, but to encounter living stones ought to give people a picture of what God would intend that challenges the status quo of the world all around us. That's true for every church, or at least it should be, because this is something that I believe very deeply. That God's kingdom, the story of what God is doing in the world through Jesus, it's the only story capable of dealing with injustice. God's kingdom is the only story compelling enough to topple empire. It's the only reality that can actually silence oppression and loose the chains of injustice. No other story can bear up under the weight of injustice. No other story can enact a new kind of world in which that injustice crumbles in ultimate defeat. Dr. King gave a speech one time where he said this very famous line that I I think it's misunderstood. He says, The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. In other words... In other words, I'm probably going to butcher this by trying to put it in other words. So, It may seem like justice is a long time coming, but it will someday. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Now, I think one of the ways that that gets misunderstood is that we forget that Dr. King was a trained theologian and pastor. Which means that that sentence is rooted in the scriptural tradition of God's story where everything wrong is being made right. Where what is broken gets put back together and what is missing gets reestablished. And in that context, you can say with confidence that though it may seem long, one day it will be this way. The way it gets misinterpreted, I think, is that people are like, hey, eventually we're just going to get this right. Humans, we're going to get it right. Does anybody think humans, we're going to get it right? Like, what evidence do we have in the entirety of human history that one day we're just going to find ourselves in a just society? 
None. All the evidence is to the exact contrary. That the longer we're left to our own devices, the more selfish we get. The more closed off we get. The more divisive we become. The more we are willing to take advantage of others for our own personal gain. The arc of the story of human history is bending towards me. Not justice. The only way that that sentence makes sense is because Dr. King was rooted in the story of what God is doing, interrupting our own bent toward ourselves and injustice, and in Jesus, rewriting a story that ends with everything wrong being made right. That is the only way that story makes sense. To be a church that is a parable means that when the world encounters us, you get a, we talked about that, of what life will be like one day. We talked about that during Advent, do you remember? That God's tomorrow informs our today. That's what being the church as a parable is all about. We give the world a parable of God's tomorrow now. So when I was a kid, I really liked to do puzzles. And I mean really liked to do puzzles. Like I was the guy that was making them and then glazing them and then hanging them up on my wall. It was very difficult being so cool. <laughs> it's a burden that I bore. I, I also, as a kid, there were a few times where I thought, you know what would be cool? If I could put this puzzle together without looking at the picture. Have you ever tried to do that? Put a puzzle together without looking at the, the picture on the box? There was something in me that felt like, man, if I could put this puzzle together without looking at the picture, that would be a better accomplishment. That'd be a bigger deal. It's not a bigger deal. That's just dumb. <laughs> like you turn puzzling, which is a technical term, you turn puzzling into being MacGyver. You know, like, I don't, I don't have a picture. I'm just taking all of these little individual pieces that are all broken apart and trying to find the way that they connect. That's just dumb because that's not what putting a puzzle together is supposed to be. They give you the picture on the box not because you need help, not because you're not smart enough to do it on your own. But the point of puzzling is to put an image in your mind and work back from there and recognize that all of these pieces fit together because you know what the picture looks like. And so, so, so many of us try to be Christians like me, putting the puzzle together without the picture. we got all these disparate pieces we call verses and chapters and books, and we try to put them together and make sense of what it is God's doing and what I'm supposed to do in response without recognizing that he has also given us the picture on the box from which to make sense of it. The story of what God is doing one day is the picture on the puzzle box. That's why we've talked about this before. Yusto Gonzalez talks about the church being a manana people. Manana means tomorrow. The church is a tomorrow people. God's tomorrow, the picture on the box, what God is going to do one day, fills our present moment with all of our purpose and our mission and our vision. Otherwise, we're just fumbling around with pieces that don't make any sense. But God's tomorrow is what informs right now. That's what we were trying to do in New York. All this ethnic and racial hatred and tension and racism and all of this 
It's like if God's shalom is where nothing is missing and nothing is broken, then we should expect when we look at the puzzle box to see that put back together again. And that's exactly what it is. If you were to look at Revelation chapter 7, you would see that at the very final picture of things is a group of people, a family, gathered around the throne of God. And John says that people is from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. All of this division being brought together in a new family and they together say salvation belongs to our God, meaning we're all together. All the strife and hatred has been healed in favor of this new kind of community. That's the picture on the puzzle box. What we're trying to do is live out of that right now. We want to live that parable today and let the world see it. God's tomorrow is shalom. A community where shalom is lived out in every possible way. And that's really important because what that means is it fills today with unshakable hope. There's a difference between hope and optimism, and we could talk about that offline. But it's important to remember that in our world today, the experience of people who live on the margins is full of discouragement and struggle and pain and injustice. But because we are a manana people, because we live out the picture on the puzzle box, what that means is we can go into the breach that sin and brokenness has created and we can live there with unshakable hope. Because we know that Dr. King was right that it may be a long time, but justice is going to come. We go there with unshakable hope, and because that's true and because we know the story that we're living out of, it also means that we are free to be completely honest about the world that we experience when we're there. That's what I mean, the difference between hope and optimism. Optimism is like, well, it's not that bad. Hope is saying, we know where the story goes, and it is that bad right now. We can be honest about the fact that injustice is real. And that things are broken. And that our way of life ought to expose in which, the ways in which our world now actually doesn't look like the picture on the puzzle box. We've been putting the pieces together wrong all along. But who's going to tell the world what the puzzle box looks like if we're not there? We live in the world as people of hope and a people of honesty about the ways in which corruption and brokenness and justice is tolerated by the world. We live out a parable, which means we embody God's tomorrow right now. And when we do that, the same way that it happened to us in New York, we should expect that if we're trying to live out God's tomorrow, it'll start to bring up some stuff in us. It'll expose in us the stuff that maybe we'd rather like keep to the side or not deal with. But it'll do that. It'll make our mess known, our brokenness known. Specifically, I'll give you an example. Being a people of God's tomorrow will expose how obsessed we are with being relevant. And I'll say it this way, it's pretty uh, incongruent to say that we're a people of God's tomorrow and be super obsessed with the cultural today. So as like an example, do you remember in uh, Austin Powers? I'm showing you how irrelevant I am by quoting movies that's like 20 years old. In Austin Powers, where Dr. Evil is trying to connect with his son, and he's like, oh, I'm hip, I'm with it. You guys know what I'm talking about? 
He's like, I'm, I'm hip, I'm with it. And then he does the Macarena <laughs> to try and show how cool he is. Do you remember how awkward that scene is? So like, churches obsessed with being relevant are just like Dr. Evil trying to do the Macarena. It really does look that awkward. It really does look that pathetic. <laughs> churches trying to be relevant and cool and hip are basically like dorky little brothers like trotting behind their big brother like, please just call me cool. Like, we are never going to be cool the way the world wants us to be cool. And our obsession with fitting in today makes us forget that our job is to embody God's tomorrow. And this extends to the way that we think about justice, too. I, I saw an article uh, not too long ago from um, Vice magazine that said, meet the young, woke Christians trying to make Christianity cool again. And I even knew some of the people that they, they uh, were talking about. But basically detailing the way that there was this new generation of justice-minded Christians that were producing this expression of Christianity that would be cool to the progressives in our culture, people that are generally predisposed to not think too much about Christianity. And I thought, that's how we get our pursuit of justice corrupted. If we get to the point where we believe that pursuing justice is the thing that helps us fit in now, then we have forgotten that justice is about God's tomorrow breaking into the present. If the work of justice becomes a way to be accepted by society, we've basically said everything that God is about is about being progressive Conservatives do this too, but that's what this article was about. That's bad theology. It's bad theology. It means that we can't be God's people the way that we were supposed to. And is the point of God's shalom to like live in the world and everybody's like, hey, look at them, they're cool. That's not the point of it at all. So what do we do? We need to start with the puzzle box. We need to look at passages like Revelation 21 and 22, which I don't have a ton of time to get into, but we read these a lot. The end of the story. The picture on the puzzle box where everything broken has been put back together and everything missing has been brought back into existence. The world that God intends, the way that it will be one day. And we work back from there. That's how we put the pieces together. It's not about fitting in. It's about saying, if this is what God is doing in the world and our call is to put it on display today, then how do we do this? A world where every tear has been wiped from every eye and there's no more death or mourning or crying or pain because the old order of things has passed away. And look at what in the next verse here says. This is Jesus seated on the throne saying, I'm making everything new. And then this Revelation 22, the very last chapter of the Bible, says, uh, the angel showed me the river of the water of life. This is picturing essentially heaven, the new Jerusalem. Showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. And on every side of the river, each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And then, I love this line. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. All the ways in which we're sick and broken in the great city of God, we're going to be healed just 
because the trees heal us. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb, they'll be in the city. The, the servants will serve him. They'll see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They won't even need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light. The arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward this. That's the puzzle box. So I, I think about this a lot. So my, my boys uh, and I, we like to watch this old house. And a few years ago, uh, they did a, a season in Roxbury, Massachusetts. Roxbury is just outside of Boston. And it's a very like, historic city, a very famous uh, city. It's, it's one of the places that Paul Revere rode through on, on his famous ride. So it's, it's steeped in this sort of grand historic tradition. But like many old cities next to urban centers, it sort of over time fell into disrepair, started to break down and crumble both the city itself and the social fabric. And so there was blight and crime and drugs, the kind of stuff that makes people want to drive around a community rather than drive to the community, something that you would try to avoid at all costs. So they went to a house in this neighborhood and began the process of rehabbing the home as they do every season. The thing they had done this year was that they put a 24-hour time-lapse camera on the house and, and recorded the entire project. And on the very last episode, they showed that time-lapse of four months down to like a minute and a half. And what was very cool about it was you saw all the people like scurrying all over the house and the house was just sort of slowly changing as you watched it. And I was struck by the fact that that house stayed put the entire time. And they got done with the video and they explained that 95% of the house, of the materials in the home, were changed during that four months. 95% brand new materials. Well, that's interesting. So I'm watching this video and I said, is that the same house that it was? Well, I'd have to say yes, because I saw the video and it never moved. It's the same house. But is it, a, is it a new house? Well, I have to say yes to that too, because 95% new materials, that's a new house. It is the same house, and it's a new house. It's been renewed. See, that's, that's the story of what God is doing. Let's go back to the last Revelation 21. Jesus said, I'm making everything new. That's important. He didn't say, I'm making all, all new things. He said, I'm making all things new. It's the same creation, it's the same world, but it's made new again. What I think my favorite thing about that season of this old house was that they said, you know, we've done this to the house and what happened was all the neighbors around watched us doing it and they all started embarking on like home improvement projects at their house too. It, it, it inspired everybody to, to the renewal spread because they saw what was happening here. Now I'm trying to picture, like, what if it wasn't PBS in Boston doing it, but it was little embedded communities of faith who understood that the picture on the puzzle box was a creation where everything was made new, and they wanted to give concrete, tangible expression to it. So they did things like renew homes for people that couldn't renew their homes on their own. We work together with our neighborhood, and we do something like that, not just because it's a nice thing to do, but because it's like, guess what? This is what God's doing. What's happening to this house is what God is doing in me and in us and in the world, and one day, all of it will look fully made new again. 
such that it might actually spread to everyone around us, that they might get a taste of what it is that God is doing, saying, I want to live as a part of that parable too. To do that, though, I think we have to train our eyes in a new direction. We have to be able to see things we don't normally look for. We have to figure out how to see the puzzle box at work in the midst of all the broken pieces. So it's not surprising to me that when you have this picture of what the world looks like with everything made right and new again, this is like when God's kingdom is fully established, this is what it's going to look like. It's not surprising to me that if that's what the puzzle box is, that when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said this in Matthew 6. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it will be one day. May it look here like where it looks where you reign fully. I'm convinced that this is a prayer that teaches us how to see the world. As much as it is asking for God to do a work in our midst, it teaches us how to see the world. It was a time I was working with a church up in Michigan, and we were going through the Lord's Prayer, and uh, what we did was we took the lunchtime and we sent people out into the neighborhood to pray this two-verse prayer over and over with kind of an expectancy that God might want to show us something about our community if we prayed this prayer. What would it look like, God, for your kingdom to show up here if the puzzle pieces started to fall together? And when they came back from lunch, and I remember there was this uh, historically enhanced person in the back of the room that meant old. I was trying to be gracious, but it didn't feel like anybody got what I was talking about. There was this older guy that had been there, and to be honest, I was, I was nervous about him the whole time he's kind of he's kind of giving me the side eye the whole time like he wasn't sure about what i was sharing i'm used to that i get side eye it's fine but i said so what'd you all think his hand went up in the air like this i was like oh no i'm gonna get it and he said i didn't walk in this neighborhood i went to the neighborhood that i work in and I went there because I've, I've, I've owned my business in this neighborhood for 20 years, and I really don't like it because it is, uh, I don't like the way people treat their yards, and the kids are rude, and all these negative things. He said, I walked around, and I was praying this prayer, and for the first time, I saw good things. I saw possibility there. I had a vision for my neighborhood that was different than what I'd ever thought before, and I was like, I'm kind of excited to go to work on Monday, something along those lines. And I thought, that's what, that's what praying this prayer meaningfully does. When we know what the end of the story looks like and we pray this in the place that we're tempted to see only through the lens of brokenness, we can see through the lens of what it is God might want to do there. That there is beauty in brokenness, as my friend Jonathan likes to say. But there's a way for us to enter into it. So I actually want you to do this this week. I don't give assignments very often, but do this this week. In your neighborhood where you work, wherever you want. Go somewhere and walk around. Bundle up. I mean, it's cold. And walk around and pray this prayer. Expecting that God will train our sight to see how the pieces might fit together. And then I'll be here next week. I want to hear what, what happened. And hear what you're thinking. This is uh, 
the thing we hold in tension with being a prophetic alternative. Yes, our way of life will critique the world, but it's done by embodying God's intentions. We let them live together. That's what it means to be the church, a church that's concerned about justice. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would give us the courage uh, to see what you see in the world, not just brokenness, but places that you love, places that you're renewing, to recognize that we're not separate from that, that we are loved and we are being renewed, and that we're all bound up together in this story that you are writing in the world through Jesus. Give us the eyes to see uh, and the courage to step out into it as you train us how to look and live at the world. It's your name we pray. Amen.